You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give. The rest of you, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament. Um, I want to apologize for something. <laughs> Last week, I told you that the, the text was also in your order of worship. It was not. Um, there was a text in your order of worship, but it was not what we were preaching on. Um, it was what we had, had read earlier than that. But this week, it is in your order of worship. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you can turn in your, in your uh, bulletin and it'll be there. If you don't own a Bible, there are three on that back table. I want, I want one of those to be in your hands. That is yours. Those are yours. So if you don't own a Bible, go grab one. That's our gift to you. Uh, but it would be great for you to have the Scripture in front of you. Here's why. Uh, Christianity ultimately is a is a word based religion. What we mean by that is that it is about um, it is about God's revelation of Himself to us through His Word and through Jesus Christ. Okay, that is how we come to know God. That is how faith comes. It comes by hearing the Word. We we are unapologetically about this book, not in the sense that we worship because we do not, but we worship the God who reveals Himself in it. Okay, we are unapologetic about that. That is, that is why in this service, not only do you hear the scripture read here, but in our call to worship, more often than not, it is from the Psalms. It is from um, one one of the one of the books in the Old Testament. And you're going to hear if we're preaching out of the Old Testament, you're going to hear two other readings throughout throughout the service. You're going to hear something from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the biographies of Jesus, and you're going to hear something from the New Testament, the Epistles. Now, if we're in one of those books, you'll hear something from the Old Testament. But th- the point is, is that we we believe in um, the primacy of God's word as both um, the, the foundation for what we believe and what we practice, which means that if, if we believe that, then we should talk about hearing it and, and reading it a lot. And so that's why you get uh, a, a little bit more Bible in, in, this, in this context than you may be used to in, in some other um, contexts. But I just want to explain that a little bit to you. Let me explain what we're doing here this morning. The 16th century Protestant reformer by the name of John Calvin said... Um, famously in in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, that the human heart is a factory of idols. And what he meant by that is that we seem to be intent, um, almost driven, in fact, to place um, the weight of our hopes in something, anything, but the God that we were made for. And the book of Ecclesiastes, this book we've spent since September going through, and we'll we'll be in it until May, this book draws our attention to that and does so in a surprising way for many of us. Because here's a book, here's a book of the Bible, of, no less, saying, okay, all right, so you want to see if there's something outside of the Creator God that will hold your hopes and make the world right? You want to investigate that? Okay, we're going to do that. We're going to try and do that, and we're going to try and do that through the lens of a world without Him. And so the majority of the book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of someone trying to investigate what can hold his hopes without God being in the world. It's in the Bible. Okay? 
This week we come to what is uh, what we've found, if you've been here for any amount of time, what's a, like a periodic habit of, of uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes who calls himself a teacher. He gets stuck in a fit of hopelessness. It's like it happens. He, he explores all these things and then gets stuck. He's like, ugh. Life is terrible. It's awful. What's the point? And then he moves on to some other things and then gets stuck again. What he highlights, though, is what many of us do with the reality of unmet expectations. In doing it, he shines a light through his his own experience on how we can't even look to our hopelessness, look to our hedging of our bets to make things right for us. So if you have your place in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 7 this morning, verses 1 to 14. I'd ask you as our habit to stand in honor of God's word. As we read, and as we do so, let me, be, let me uh, help us to be mindful of the fact that, like I said, we believe this is God's Word. This is His revelation of Himself to us, which means that this isn't just a passing phrase that we can, um, we can read and forget like we do the editorials in our papers. This is God's Word and it lays claim on us. And so we should add to it uh, faith and love as we hear it. Let's do that now. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools." This also is meaningless. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is like the wisdom that preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is God's word. It's given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, as we sang this morning, you alone can rescue. Not me, not my words, not even our own efforts. You alone can rescue. And you have brought us into this room for many reasons, uh, but the one singular one that we know of is to hear from you. And so we ask that you would preach to us by your spirit, Lord, would you preach your gospel to us? Let Christ, his cross and his resurrection come to the fore and the one who speaks, let him fall to the wayside for you alone can rescue. And we look to that now in Jesus name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Look, I have a friend uh, who is an elder in another local church here in the area um, who is a chronic optimist. Um, And I say chronic because to many of us who know him, it seems so Pollyanna-ish as to be a sickness. Um, He may, in fact, be listening to this when it goes up online and to that he'll know who he is and he'll forgive me. Uh, But the point is, is like... uh, it. He is a chronic optimist. Maybe you know someone like that. Or maybe you're like that yourself. The rest of us, however, are not. We are more pessimistic. Now, we don't call it that. 
right? Because we want to we want to put a, a positive spin on it, so we call ourselves realistic, right? We are realists. However, what that means is, is that our realism is based on our perspective on the real. Our perspective on the real. And normally that involves highlighting anything negative, downplaying anything positive, and generally being grumpy. We are pessimists. You may call yourself a realist. You are not a realist. You are pessimistic, and people don't like to be around you. Or me. Uh, but that, that, okay, moving on. During some periods of our history as a nation, as a culture, this would be seen as a vice, right? This would be a problem. Would y'all stop nudging each other? They get it. They're pessimists. They get it. Stop it, okay? Like, this would be a problem in most periods of our history, but today, in our postmodern, jaded, addicted-to-irony-type world, we see it as a virtue. It's a virtue, right? The phrase we use is, If I don't expect much, I can't be disappointed. Good. See? I told you. All right? We can't... But the problem is, this is a maddening issue for us. Because even you realists in the room, like me, you know, the problem is we can't seem to keep ourselves from hoping. No matter how much we try. We can't. What we see this morning is that our teacher is trying to do just that, to keep himself from hoping, and he's failing. So we're going to look at this text in three ways. Outlining your bulletin, if that's helpful to you, uh, three ways we're going to look at it. We're going to look at expressing hopelessness, we're going to look at unmasking hopelessness, and then finally, uh, the great Christian task of resisting it, okay? Expressing, unmasking, and resisting. Let's get started with expressing. Look down at verses 1 to 6. Look, now I've said this before about... um, the teacher of Ecclesiastes. This is not the dude you want to invite to a party. He is way more Eeyore than Tigger, okay? Tiggers are fun at parties. Um, Eeyores are guys that stand in the corner and everyone wonders what's wrong with them. Uh, but th- this guy's more of an Eeyore. And this, these verses, that in one, verses 1 to 6, contain a series of, of better-than phrases, okay? Now, this is common in this type of literature. In the Bible, this is a literature called wisdom literature, it's there to help you with, with um, shaping you into the kind of person that makes wise decisions. Okay? It's wisdom literature. It's not there so that you can follow it, and if you follow it word for word, you become wise. That's no, 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 no. That's missing the point. It is there to shape you into the type of person that makes wise decisions. Okay? Here's what he says. He says things like this. It's better to go to a funeral than to a party. That's what he means by better to go to the house of mourning than the house of mirth. Neither of those are words we use a punch. House of mourning is a funeral home. House of mirth is a frat party, okay? It's better, he says, it's better to go to a funeral home than a frat party. It's better to get the business from a wise man than to hear fools singing. He says, it's sorrow is better than laughter, which is like nails on a chalkboard. That's what he means by um, thorns on the bottom of a pot. Remember, they use clay pots, you scrape them across big thorns, makes a sound that you don't want to hear. It's just like nails on the chalkboard, okay? You get the idea. On the surface, this seems ridiculous. We listen to it, we're like, what are you talking about? Nobody wants to be around a Debbie Downer, okay? So this is ridiculous. But verse 2 sets up one of the reasons for this when he says this. He says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So why is it better to go there than to the party? Why is it better to go to the funeral home than the frat party? He says, because it reminds you that death is the governing principle of reality. In a world where there is no personal ultimate God, death is the governing principle of reality. 
And so when he says that sorrow, or, or your translation may say anger, when he says that sorrow, anger is better than laughter, what he means is that it better accords with reality. If you actually viewed reality the way it is, if you were a realist, sorrow is a more appropriate response than laughter. That's what he's saying, okay? Now, you've thought this, right? This isn't just like the way of goth kids. Okay, this is like us. We have all thought this at some point. But maybe for you it isn't death. Maybe you don't think to yourself, death is looming. Some of y'all, you know, if you are like, if you are like under 30, you have not realized your mortality yet. It's okay. Like the rest of us, we're starting to, we're starting to come to grips with it. It's like, oh, no. Like we, we come to grips with it, right? They, you see them in the mirror, those gray hairs. No. All right. But maybe death isn't it. Maybe for you it's some other reality that seems unsurmountable. Maybe it's like a change in your health. Nothing will ever change. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's crushing debt. Right? Maybe it's living under the weight of bad choices that you made years ago. Uh, maybe it's one failed relationship after another. You name it. But what he is saying is that in light of these things that he sees as insurmountable, that sorrow better lines up with reality. It better lines up with the way things just are. The wise go to the house of mourning because they realize that the world is not a place in which laughter should happen. Because they're realists. And he calls those that spend their time partying and laughing fools Not because the Bible doesn't say to have fun. It does. Jesus' first miracle was done to make a party a little more lively. Okay? He he turned water into wine for a reason. And it wasn't because they just ran out of stuff to drink. It's like, I'm going to make you some good stuff. And it's going to be real good. And the host of the party was like, wow, it's the best wine ever. You know, and that party was probably real lively after that. All right? So it doesn't say it because the Bible says not to have fun. But because of... Because of... Trying to live in light of the meaninglessness of the world, laughter simply doesn't make sense. And so what's going on here in this passage, these first six verses, is someone trying desperately to grapple with the world they see. The same world that you see. The same world that I see. We all know that there is something not right with the world. And most of us realize there's something not right with us. We know this intuitively, and we know it experientially. And the truth is, the Bible is actually very honest about this. I know that most of us have been taught to think that reading your Bible will turn you into Ned Flanders, right? Where you're not allowed to say anything negative, and you have to say diddly-ho after everything that that you say. But that is not the case. The Bible is honest about the fact that the world is not right. In fact, that is a major component of the biblical story. See, God makes the world, he calls it good, he places us in the world, humanity, to be in his image, to be in a dependent relationship with him, and to steward the world for him. And that's a a big word that means to to rule in light of him. So we rule as he would, we, we seek to rule the world. In other words, he rules the world through us, governs the world through us. And so everything was great, but we broke it. And we broke things by breaking relationship with him. Uh, we turned from him and betrayed him. And when we did, the, the Bible talks about that original state. It uses the word shalom, which is uh, the Hebrew word for peace, right? Now, for us, peace means, like, no hostility. Um, but the, the Hebrew word means more than that. In, in the Jewish worldview, peace meant 
all relationships lining up exactly as they're supposed to. Everything lining up perfectly. Unbroken relationship between God and humanity. Humanity and the world. Humanity and each other. Uh, everything kind of lining up exactly how, as it was supposed to. But when we betrayed God, everything came out of joint. We became guilty for betraying him. That's why death comes into the world and does become the operating principle. But also not just physical death, but also something the Bible calls hell, which means bearing the weight of that betrayal. But we also became stuck living out of, of a lie. In other words, we were, in a sense, corrupted is the way the, the scripture talks about it. Put in bondage to something, a principle um, in which we consistently act out of. We are betrayers, because, or we betray because we are betrayers. We betray God. Uh, another word for that in the Bible is sin. We sin because we are already sinners. We don't become sinners because we sin. Okay, It's a very important distinction. And so when the teacher of Ecclesiastes looks around at the world, this is what he sees. He sees a world governed by brokenness. Same world that you probably see. We have an entire industry that makes money on showing you that world. It's called the news. Okay, They love that. Yes, there's beauty too. Yes, there is laughter. But in light of the brokenness, laughter and beauty seem only to be a distraction from reality. Right? Some of you have thought this. We know this, right? Now that leads us uh, to indifference and resignation. Look down at verses 7 to 12. Now, if you, at first glance, these verses seem like they're disconnected, but follow me and we're going to try and make sense out of them. Verses 7 to 8 are basically saying this. Look, if you are paying attention to the world, it's going to drive you nuts. And so the end of a thing is better than the beginning of it. Because the beginning is a place of hope. Right? The beginning is a place of hope. Then he comes to this phrase that patience is better than pride, right? Now, this sounds really religious. Sounds very religious to us, right? Because because of that, we tend to just drift right by it. But I want you to think about what he's saying. He couples that with the idea that the end is better than the beginning. And so what he means by pride here is not the boastfulness that we often associate with it, not the moral quality of it. He's talking about uh, the belief that comes from the beginning of something. We call it new beginnings. What do we always believe at the beginning of something? It will be different this time. And he's saying that's pride. Pride. He's talking about expectations, in other words. Why? Because we always believe at the beginning of something we can make it different. And he's saying that patience is better than this. Why? Because you can simply bear through something. And so in light of reality, he is saying that it is better to go through without expectations... Because then you won't be disappointed. Sound familiar? Right here. Right here in the Bible. I know some of us believe that there's nothing, there's nothing that makes sense to us in this. He just said the exact same thing you and I say almost every day. He's looking at the world. Again, he's looking at the world from the perspective of a world without a personal God. And he's saying that we need to resign ourselves to hopelessness so that we won't be disappointed because nothing is going to help us. This is what he's getting at in verse 10. He's saying, look, we always think the good old days were great. They weren't. Wise people don't say that. Because they know it wasn't. It was the same brokenness you're living in today. And then finally in verse 12, where, the protection of wis- where he's talking about the protection of wisdom in context here is, is like protection from expecting things to change. All right? Everybody cheery? We good? All right. This is enough to make me want to go to sleep for a couple of days. But before we do, let me, um, 
I think it would be good to first unmask what's going on here. Why do we do this? Because what he's talking about here is not rare. Half of y'all have been smiling at me through this, and I know it's not because I'm super funny. It's because you're going, I know. You're talking about me. And the hammer's going to come down at some point. Bad expectations. Hold on. No, you know, we're, this is what we're doing. This is not rare. This isn't as if it's some kind of far-off notion. We all do this to some extent, except for maybe my elder friend at another church. But what are we doing? Basically, what is going on is self-protection. Let's close. I want to make sure everyone understands what I'm about to say. Our culture makes a virtue out of this mindset, right? Realism or some kind of glum outlook is seen as honest and authentic. It is so rampant, in fact, that many of us in this room don't know how to be when things are going well for us. And when, when, when anyone comes across our path and we ask them how they're doing and they say, really great, we think they're either lying to us or hopelessly naive don't we? We don't think it's possible. We do this to protect ourselves from disappointment. And in fact, that is the logical result of seeking meaning in everything the teacher has talked about up to this point. If you try and seek meaning out of your money or your power or pleasure and sexuality or what have you, eventually you're going to come to this. You're going to come to this. Here's what I mean. Let's say you tend to think power can make you right, right? It can make the world right for you. If I just get enough power, I'll be safe. Everything will be good. Um, You pour everything you have into it. But what do you find? You find it's never enough. can't ever get enough. I'm trying really hard, but I can't seem to get enough from it. Power eventually is taken from you or it can't keep you safe, right? You're in the power relationship with everyone you know and you're still betrayed. What do you do? You're stuck in disappointment. That's what happens. And not disappointment like your team lost the Super Bowl, no matter how badly they lost the Super Bowl. I know that was disappointing, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the kind where everything I ever worked for is a lie type of disappointment. Like the, the trap door falls out from under you type of disappointment. You feel foolish, you feel vulnerable, and you feel exposed. And it is so terrible that you decide... I am never going to feel like that again. And so the way I'm not going to do that is simply by never hoping. Not going to do it. Going to hold my breath. (gasps) And turn blue. You know, like, and since you can't find something to hold your hopes, you decided to place them in hopelessness. Power can't keep me safe. Power can't make me right, but hopelessness can. Jadedness can. Hip, ironic, edginess can. Realism can. You see, you and I and our culture have come to believe that realism, that this, this, what I'm talking about here, is courageous, right? That it's honestly seeing the world as it is. But it isn't. It's cowardice. It's cowardice. It is born out of a desire not to hurt, not to feel foolish, not to be disappointed, We think we are refusing to hope, but we aren't refusing to hope at all. We're just hoping in the worst. Which is why we don't know what to do when good things happen. That's its face. But here's its source. Look down at verse 13. 
The teacher said this once before in chapter 1, and he says it again. And if you hear the same uh, author in the same book say something more than once, it probably is a governing principle, right? It's probably more than just a passing thought. This is an important thing he says. He says this, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? All right? If you've checked out, I need you to check back in, because this is, this, is, this is it right here, okay? Remember what I said earlier about how God made everything good, but how we had broken it. We turned from him. Now, the scripture says that we did that. The story goes that we did that because of a lie. We were convinced of a lie. That lie was that we, though made in his image with great dignity, could actually be more than his image. We could be his equal. We didn't have to just be like him. We could be him. We were tricked into believing that we were being held back by God instead of loved and provided for by Him. And so when we turned from Him, it was under the assumption that we could be like God, that we could be Him. We did not have to depend on Him. We could be independent of Him and make things according to our desires. And so when 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 the teacher here in verse 13 is talking about The fact that you can't straighten out what God has made crooked. He is speaking in frustration of the fact that he cannot make his expectations happen. And he is doubly frustrated because he can't stop hoping in something, but none of these things can hold his hope because he isn't in control. God is. God makes the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. He is in control of the universe. He wrote the story that you and I are actors in, not us. Look, you and I want to think that we are masters of our destiny, don't we? That we we can control our world, that we can limit our pain by limiting our expectations. But we can't, because you and I were made to hope. We were made to. It's like saying, I want to be able to live without breathing good luck with that. You're going to try, and you know what's going to happen? Eventually, your body's going to start breathing again. Because you were made to do it. Unless there is something wrong, you will continue to do it. You and I were made to hope in something. We were made to find our worth in something, to make something ultimate in our lives. We are dependent creatures. We are dependent creatures made to find these things, to find hope, to find meaning, to find an ultimate, not in power, not in sex or respect or money or even in hopelessness, but in God. That is what we were made for. He is the one we were made for. You are not like Him. I am not like Him. We are in His image, but we are made for Him. And as long as we seek life apart from Him, whether that life looks like living as far away from Him as we can. Normally that's going to look like what we would define as crazy living, right? Whether that independence looks like doing that, or it looks like being good little boys and girls, thinking that we can make Him be good to us. No matter which one, if you continue like that, you will be lost. Not only will we be stuck in frustration and disappointment, But ultimately, we will have to bear the weight of our continual betrayal of God before Him. We have got to have someone to rescue us. Now listen, 
this book is great for helping to unmask what is going on in our hearts and expose it. But as Christians, and if you're not a Christian this morning, uh, I'm glad you're here. Listen, let me, let me let you into a little bit of what we believe. As Christians, we know that the ground of our hope is not found simply in unmasking. It's not found in simply telling the truth about something. Lots of people can do that. Okay? It's found in being rescued. And that is where Jesus comes in. This book, the book of Ecclesiastes, is written from a perspective until the last chapter or so of a world without a personal God. But that is not our world. You see, God didn't leave the world broken, but instead promised to fix things, to make things right. And to make things right, though, is to fix, not things in general, but to fix things where they went wrong. And it went wrong in our alienation from him, in our betrayal of him. Like I said, we turned from him. We betrayed him. We are guilty before him, and so that is where God focused. In Jesus, God took on humanity. He took to himself a human nature. What we mean by that is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Um, He lived a life of perfection, fully dependent on God, fully loving towards others. That, That is the life that we were made for but could never do. Because we're stuck living out of the lie. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care for me. God will limit my expectations. But he also died in the place of sinners. Now, that is offensive to many of us, uh, but hear me out. The Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the New Testament, says that the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but literally bearing the weight of our betrayal. Because all betrayals create uh, a weight. They create guilt. You've been betrayed. You know this. Somebody's got to bear it. The wages of sin is bearing the wrath of God that he holds out for being betrayed. And forgiveness, forgiveness is not making an offense go away. That is the therapeutic view of forgiveness. That is not the real world view of forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness says you can just kind of forget it. No, no, no. Forgiveness is not making an offense going away. It is the betrayed one bearing the weight of that betrayal instead of the betrayer. Now, I said a bunch of different ways of saying betray, so let me... Victim, listen to me, victim bears the weight of the betrayal for the offender. That is forgiveness. When you've been betrayed and you forgive someone else, what you're saying is, I'm not going to take what I am due out of you. I'll bear it. That is always what forgiveness is. And that is what Jesus did. He died on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. Not just a painful physical death, but he bore God's wrath for us. He cried out at God's abandonment of him on the cross because, as the Apostle Paul said, he became sin for us. In other words, in our place. But here's the thing. If the story ends there, we still have no hope because that's just another story of another dude dying. Lots of them happen. It happens every day. Lots of dudes die. But it didn't end there. Jesus rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul says in another one of his writings that Jesus rose for the sake of our justification. Now that is a a churchy word that simply means being made right with God. That he rose so that we would be made right with God. He rose as a sign that we have been made right. Listen to me. If you keep placing your hope, your faith in power and sex and relationships, you will keep being disappointed until you ultimately place your hope in hopelessness until you die. And you will still be guilty before God. Hopelessness cannot save you. But if you place your faith in Jesus, you place your hopes on Him, admit before God that you have turned from Him, that you need to be rescued, 
then you can be restored to the one you were made for in the first place, the one your heart was made to hope in. But not just that. That's great. That's dealing with the hereafter. But Christianity is not just about that. It's about the here and now. Which means that you also no longer need to be defined by hopelessness. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then the teacher is wrong. Death is no longer the operative principle in the world. Life is. Love is. You have a ground for your hope. Not in circumstances, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And the promise that one day that will be true of you as well. You will be raised from the dead. Okay? And now that leads us to the scope of hope. Because the hope of of Christianity begins with Jesus' resurrection, but it doesn't end there. It can never end there. If your expectations aren't what you are ultimately hoping in, then you are free to hope without fear that disappointment will crush you. Look, disappointment is so terrible for us because of the weight of the hopes we lay in our expectations. But if you've been reconciled to God by faith alone in Jesus, if you have placed your faith in a rescuer who has risen from the dead and has said that this same resurrection power is at work in you and in the world through you and other Christians, then you can hope knowing that your expectations, that if your expectations aren't met, it doesn't say anything about you. Let me say that again. If you know that Jesus is risen from the dead, that that same power is in you and is at work through you and through other Christians, you can hope without fear because if your expectations aren't met, it doesn't say anything about you. You are secure in Christ. Now, does that mean that you won't be disappointed? Of course not. I'm not talking about your best life now with shiny teeth. Like, that's not what I'm talking about here. Like, Christianity does not say that all of our hopes will be met in this world as it is now. What it does say is that we do have a hope for a world. We, more than, it's more than... Look, when, when you and I think hope, we think pie in the sky. When, when the Bible says hope, it means a firm trust, a certain trust. We have a certain trust in a world of justice. A world of being completely relationally filled. A world in which there is no sin. A world where there is no pain. A world in which there is no loneliness. And we have a a certain trust in that fact because Jesus rose again and has promised he's going to come to raise you as well. That is where our hope comes from. Not the circumstances of life. It says that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, really is at work here in the now, really making all things new in the now. And that means that you can be free to risk. Listen to me. What dreams are you unwilling to entertain because of the fear of disappointment? Don't justify. Don't justify with me. Like, I know you have them. You're like, I I don't have any dreams. I don't ever hope for yes you do what dreams are you unwilling to entertain because of fear of disappointment you don't want to risk you don't want to go and really throw everything in it you want to play the powerless card you want to play the powerless card because you don't want to be disappointed if you fail you think that relationship can never be healed or 
I'll never be able to do that, whatever it is. Listen, I am not a motivational speaker, okay? This is not a motivational speech, but I am telling you that you don't have to be enslaved to that fear anymore. This is a place where you need to repent and believe the gospel again. Listen, some of you right now in this room have vocational dreams. You're in, a, you're in a job and you're like, the job pays the bills, but this is not what I'm dreaming for. I'd really love to be able to do X. Some of you have relational dreams. Some of you have dreams for your family. Uh, things that you, you can't get rid of. You can't seem to kill them. You've tried. You've tried to stomp out the hope and it won't go away. You, you can't kill it, but you're scared to death of pursuing it because of what will happen if they don't come through. Nothing will happen if they don't come through. Because your faith isn't in your dream. Your faith is in Christ. Okay? I know you're scared. Look, when the Apostle John says that perfect love drives out all fear, what he means by that is that the perfect love that he's talking about is like, if I love really well other people, I won't be scared. The perfect love comes from God and Jesus, not from you, okay? The perfect love that drives out all fear is the love that says, I've got you. There's nothing you have to worry about. Like, but what if I'm disappointed? I've got you. What if they hurt me? I've got you. Look, men and women went to their deaths because of perfect love. And it wasn't because they were loving perfectly. It was because of a a Savior who held them. Nothing will happen because your faith isn't in your dream, it is in Christ. At the same time, can I tell you that you are limiting what God can do by your sinful pessimism? And yes, I just called it that. Your sinful pessimism. If God can raise the dead, and he's done it on more than one occasion, by the way. Like Lazarus, we read about him. Elijah did it with his widow's son. Like Jesus did it with another another boy, uh, the widow of Nain's son. Like, walking along, there's a funeral procession. He, like, touches it, get up. Kid's like, whoa. You know, stands up. Gives him back to his mama. Okay? If God can raise the dead, and that power is at work in you, as Paul says in Ephesians 3 and in Romans chapter 8, then your unwillingness to act is more about what you are saying about God than it is about what you're saying about you. I'm not promising your dreams will come true. That would be foolish. That would be foolish of me. What I'm saying is you are free to risk because Jesus has rescued you from your bondage to your expectations. You don't have to be a slave to disappointment anymore. Because our hopelessness is at root a hope. A hope that we can protect ourselves from being disappointed. But we were made to hope in far more than self-protection. We were made to hope in a God who loves us and has provided for us all things in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, i got a hope right now. My hope right now is that you, by your Spirit, are moving in our hearts. Because if my words just go out without the Spirit, they are empty and meaningless and do nothing. But if, Lord, your Spirit is at work in our hearts then your gospel will go deep into the hearts of those who believe and those who don't yet believe. And you can produce faith in both. And so I'm asking, we're all asking that you would do that. Would you provide faith? Would you 
would you bury your gospel deep in our hearts and let it overflow into joy? Not at the fact that everything in the world is going right. You don't solve realism with optimism. You solve realism with hope. Hope that's not in circumstances, but in the God of all circumstances. And so, Lord, give us grace and faith to walk with you in that, even now. For my friends here this morning who are governed by fear, and I am not far from them, I pray that your perfect love would cast it out. Give us grace to see that you've got us. And that our risks, our successes, and our failures say nothing about us. Because everything that was worth saying was said to us on the cross and in the resurrection. We are more broken than we ever imagined and more loved than we dared dream. We ask all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.